0: text for this morning's sermon is 1 Samuel 7, 1-17. through 17. If you want to turn to 1 Samuel 7, we're going through the book of 1 Samuel, and you may have noticed that uh, we haven't heard about Samuel for the last three chapters. Uh, we left off Samuel in chapter 4, Israel not listening to his word, and uh, through him not listening to the word of God. But we come back and we hear and see Samuel chapter 7. Starting in verse 1. And the men of Kiriath Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Astaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Astaroth, and they served the Lord only. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was, also, there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. Let's pray.
1: Father, your grace. Shines through in this text. God, I pray that we would learn from Israel. We would learn from your response to them, your gracious response to them, from your provision through the difficult years when Samuel is growing up. Lord, help us never to doubt You and to cling to Your grace when we do. Lord, I pray that You would apply this text to our hearts, that it might be practical to our lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How do You... Attempt to gain favor from God? How do you attempt to gain the favor from God? Let me ask it this way What do you do, or where does your guilt take you? When you feel guilty, what do you do? As you have Guilt rising up in your heart because of sin, where do you go? And that'll if if, if you can imagine that, we'd all like to say, Well, I go right to the cross of Christ, fall down before him and receive the grace provided. Well, if you do that every time more power to you but if you're like me and like Israel we often go somewhere else so that God might be pleased with us what's the rhythm of the life of people that are making their way to God What's the process like? Guilt comes in. Then what? Martin Luther, I don't know how many of you uh, have heard Luther's story, was a man who was so broken in his sin and chased every trail he could to try to figure out a place to go to deal with this sin, that he literally pretty much went mad. People who knew him thought he was possessed by demons. People attempt to gain favor with God in many ways. Luther, he tried the good works of a monk. Maybe if he could be the best Monk that could help him. He undertook sacred quests. He made special offerings. He sought mystical highs. Maybe he could have some spiritual experience. And he abased himself. He cut himself off from the pleasures of life. But none of these attempts succeeded for Luther for the simple reason that none of them had God's written approval. Finally, Luther went to the Scriptures where he learned this about the Gospel. Luther wrote, nothing but the story of how Christ stepped into our sins and carried them on the cross in His flesh and destroyed them, so that all who believe in Him are set free from sin through Him. Nothing but that can satisfy the guilty conscience. Now Israel has a guilty conscience for good reason. If you remember, First Samuel starts at a dark, Time in Israel's history, they are in the land of Canaan, but they're worshiping the gods of Canaan. They're following after the same lifestyle of the people of Canaan. They're doing what's right in their own eyes, but in the midst of this, we see this child being born. In the midst of darkness, we see Samuel being raised up. And we see wicked priests, the sons of Eli, in contrast with this child that's born. And then we see the judgment of God on the sons of these wicked priests. And Samuel's ready right away In chapter four, verse one, the word of the Lord is with Israel. The Philistines are marching in, but they don't go to the prophet that the Lord has raised up, to the advocate he had given them. Rather, they seek magic in the Ark of the Covenant. You have three chapters on the Ark. If you remember the Philistines destroy Israel at Ebenezer, remember that. At a town called Ebenezer where it means remember there is help at that place when they brought the ark. Surely Israel is going to be helped, but they're not. They're destroyed. They're defeated. The ark is captured and the ark and, and when the ark is in the presence of the Philistines, God wreaks havoc on the Philistines. And then as the ark is sent back to the men of Beth Shemesh in Israel, 70 men of Israel are struck dead. And at the end of chapter 6, Israel's saying, who can stand before this holy God? And they want to get rid of God all they see is the fierce holiness of God, and they haven't seen the kindness of God. We all can do this. And so at the beginning of chapter 7, we see that the men of Kirith-Jerim are called, you come get the ark, And for 20 years, the son of Abinadab, Eleazar, is in charge of the ark. And for 20 sad years, Israel goes on worshiping Yahweh and the gods of Canaan, which he can't do. Well, what would it be like in those days? Well, what... The Canaanites did, and what Israel did, is they sought the gods, lowercase g, for provision. If you want your crops to grow, you have to go to the fertility gods. You have to go to Baal, and you have to go to the Ashtoreth. You have the female and the male gods. You have to come before them, and this is what worship looked like in Canaan. This is what the Israelites were participating in. They were coming before those gods and they were offering up ritual sex to those gods so that their crops would grow. you imagine that? Imagine what church was like. You come to church, have a big orgy, please the fertility gods, and your crops will grow. That was the lifestyle at the time the Israelites were in chapter 7. This is what they were doing. This is what happened when Samuel is raised up. Now I want you to think for a minute. What would it take to get people who have got used to this sort of worship in this sort of lifestyle what would it take for them to stop that cold turkey what would it take for them to repent and to serve Yahweh himself you know we read these stories and we think well this is easy just quit worshiping these false gods and worship Yahweh well just like idolatry today uh, idolatry takes advantage of our sensuality. And it takes advantage of the instant desire for pleasure. And just as hard it is for you to lay down your idols, it would have been for the Israelites to cast aside these Canaanite gods and worship Yahweh alone. And so what we see is... Samuel shows up and says, if you are really returning to the Lord with your whole heart, you must stop worshiping these gods. And so Israel's lamenting. They're feeling the brokenness of their sins. And Samuel at that point in time says, if you're really turning to the living God, then you have to get rid of these gods You have to turn from worshiping them. And you have to follow God with your whole heart. You have to turn to God alone to save you. If you want your crops to grow, you have to go to Yahweh. If you want food on the table, if you want provision for your life, your hope has to be in Yahweh. And so Samuel says, gather together at Mizpah and I'll pray for you and intercede on your behalf. All of Israel, this is the sign of the grace of God. People don't just walk away from their sins like that apart from God working repentance in their hearts. And so all of Israel gathers at Mizpah and the Philistines are watching and listening. What are they doing? They're all gathering together. They must be getting ready to strike us down. So the Philistine lords take action. They go on the offensive. Let's go destroy Israel before they get their troops aligned. But Israel gathers there so that Samuel may Pray for them and intercede on their behalf, and they're drawing up water and they're pouring water out as an offering. It's, a, it's like a form of fasting. You need water to live. Lord, only water comes from you. Only food comes for you. And so at the same time, they're there. And Samuel is praying. For them, the Philistines are coming and Israel is terrified. Can you imagine? We're finally repenting and now we're going to be killed. All hope is gone for them. And they cry out to Samuel, Don't stop crying out to the Lord for us. Don't stop. Keep mediating. Pray. To God to save us. And Samuel took a lamb. And at the moment, as we'll see in a moment when we look at the text, at the moment, Samuel sacrifices the Lamb, and the Philistines are ready to destroy them. God thunders against their enemies. You see that? The text says, as Samuel was sacrificing the Lamb, as Israel has no hope in anything else, the Lord thunders against Israel's enemies. And they're confused. And Israel pursues them. And Israel chases them as far as Beth-car. I don't know how far that is because I couldn't find it on the map. But I bet it was far. <laughs> and the Lord worked the salvation for Israel. And then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. You see, I just love the sovereignty of God. few chapters before, they're in the town called Ebenezer. The Lord helped us. And they were destroyed. As they didn't have their hope in God, they had hope in the ark. But now, between these two towns, Samuel sets up a stone, says, "We'll call this Ebenezer. The Lord has helped us." And Israel had wicked priests and wicked advocates, and they were destroyed. But now the Lord has raised up a righteous advocate and a spotless Lamb was sacrificed. And the Lord helped Israel. And all along, the Lord was working this salvation. It's amazing the provision of God. And then it says that Samuel went on circuit judging Israel year by year to Bethel, to Gagal, and Mizpah, And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for this was, for his home was there. And there he judged Israel and built an altar to the Lord. So this is our text. This is the story put before us of God's working for his people. And we want to ask, what can we learn about this salvation wrought for Israel. What does it look like when a people are being brought back to the Lord? What's the rhythm of their life and circumstances that brings them to the point of provision and salvation? And so if you look at your notes, the first thing we see is that we must lament the devastating effects of sin. When a people are going to be brought back to God, God in His grace lets them begin to lament the brokenness sin brings. And we saw right away in verse 2 that for 20 years, the house of Israel was lamenting after the Lord. They were feeling empty in the brokenness of their idolatry. So the beginning of a turn to God is a brokenness over the deadly effects of sin that separate us from the God of life. You see, a person can know they have sin and experience no brokenness of it. But you know the Spirit of God is drawing someone in when you see people begin to lament over the brokenness of their idolatry and sin. You see, one way can be just intellectual. Yeah, I know that's sin, but it wouldn't be described as lamenting for the Lord, but God in His grace had brought them to a point where their idolatry was no longer satisfying them? Think of a man who first begins an adulterous affair. At the beginning, there's no brokenness or lamenting over a sin. Let's say this is a Christian man. It might be exciting in the moment, but if he is the Lord's, brokenness and lamenting and distance from God will fill that man's soul and cause him to be utterly broken. Or think of the drunkard who maybe first begins thinking, man, this satisfies... But then over time realizes, I'm just suffering in the slavery to this sin. And so not only ought we to lament the effects of our sin, but we must also turn from sin and serve God. This is another way to say repentance. This is If you're wondering what repentance is like, in verses 3 and 4, we just get almost in a systematic way how repentance ought to go. Look at what it says in verse 3. Then Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart... So repentance means turn around. So picture, Israel's walking this way, and Samuel says if you're turning around to the Lord alone what does he say first then put away the foreign gods and the ashtroth from among you step one to repentance is put this away My hope was here. My happiness was here. My provision was being sought here. And he said, put it away. And most people think that's what repentance is. That's step one of repentance. Repentance is not stop doing the bad thing alone. But what does he say? Then put away the foreign gods and the astroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord. See, it's not just stop the negative direction of your life, like stand here and be neutral, but see God. Turn around and look at the God of the universe. And look for mercy. This is what Israel wasn't doing in chapter 6. Let's get him out of here. But the repentant heart. There's so many people who are struggling in sin and they will even call it sin. But they cannot stop because all they've ever tried is to stop doing the bad. And they've never seen the Lord. They've never seen the kindness and grace of the Lord. Which is what you do. The the second part of repentance is direct your heart to the Lord. And the third aspect is serve Him only and He will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So not just turn around and see the Lord, but serve Him. See, this is the opposite of how all other deities work in Canaan. You go to the gods to get what you need. You manipulate them. You try to please them so they give you what you need. But what Israel is called to do is to see the Lord and to desire to serve Him. Worship Him. He's worthy. And the irony is, is when you do, what does it say? And serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. You see, when you turn to God to worship Him for who He is and serve Him, he takes care of the provisions. He will deliver from the enemies. So right here in the midst of the, this text, we get a threefold example of repentance. And then he summarizes their repentance in verse 4. So the people of Israel put away the bales and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. So they turn to God. Now get this. Repentance is not the payment for salvation. Let me say that again. Repentance is not the payment for salvation. So the good action that gets your sins forgiven is not you turning around and walking back to God. God doesn't look at that and say, now I'll forgive your sins. The grounds of your salvation is not repentance. If you think that, you'll have no peace. Because when do you ever repent well enough? The grounds of your salvation is what? The work of Christ. The condition of your salvation is repentance. When God is saving you. The condition of your life is repentance. You see that? You say, what do you mean saving you? Well, this is how the Scripture speaks of our salvation so often. You know, we just think, I got saved past tense. Well, that's true. The moment you believe, you're counted not guilty before God. But then the Bible talks about the saving of you throughout your life. Paul says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. You see, the lost are perishing. They're in a process of dying. And Christians are in the process of being saved and the condition of their being saved is a condition or a rhythm of life of repentance. In 2 Timothy 2.24, Paul tells Timothy, "...and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patient, enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness." Why? Why? that God may perhaps grant repentance leading to the knowledge of truth that they may come to their senses and escape, escape the snare of the devil after being captured by Him to do His will. You see that? Timothy, you be patient and gentle so that God may grant them repentance that will lead them into the knowledge of God after being captured by God to do His will. You see that? Your repentance and my repentance doesn't earn God's salvation. It's evidence that God is saving us. Because sinners don't repent. They plan more sin and they love it. They may be broken in it, but they have no desire to walk away from it. One more text I want to give you. Okay, I lied too. Second Corinthians 7.9 As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Paul wrote a hard letter to the Corinthians. He says, I'm thankful that you were grieved into repenting. And then he says this, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, where worldly grief produces death. Here's what he's saying. He says, I'm thankful you were grieved into repenting as though you didn't experience loss. That's godly grief. You know why? Because you see your sin... And rather than having that bury you, you see that God can forgive that sin in Christ so you don't experience loss. Worldly grief devastates. There is no hope. There's only loss. But here's the key point I want you to take from this. In Romans 2.4, before I read it, I want you to think about this in your mind. What leads a person to repentance? What leads a person to repentance? I just had this pointed out to me this week, and it just struck me. In Romans 2.4, here's what Paul says, Or do you presume upon the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. You see that? What draws people into repent is the kindness of God. What, what what do we think it's going to say? Oh, you see the wrath of God coming for your sin. That's what's going to make me turn. No, that actually won't make you turn. Israel, when they weren't seeing a kind God, said, "Get." get the ark out of here. We can't handle Him. The Philistines said, get the ark out of here. But when by the grace of God they see the kindness of God and the grace of God, it brings about repentance. I hope that that is sweetness to your soul. I hope that draws you to him. Because you could live the rhythm of your life when you see sin. You don't see a kind God. You see this God ready to just pound you into the ground. And that won't lead to repentance. You'll run from that God. So not only should we lament the effects of our sin, we must also repent of our sin, turn from our sin to serve God. And not only should we do that, but then we should desperately cry out to the advocate for salvation. Look at verse 5. and Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mitzpah and I'll pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. Samuel judged the people of Israel Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord God for us, that He may save us from the hands of the Philistines. So when you see your sin and you begin to lament over it, and you begin to turn and look to God, then, in all desperation, we cry out to the Advocate, to One who can pray for us, to One who can go for us. The more one commentator said, Ralph Dale Davis, he said, more and more God's people must walk in the day of, in the way of desperation and in desperation in prayer. Once we see this, we will no longer regard prayer as a pious cop out, but as our only rational activity. That is such helpful insight all the more often we as Christians should walk in the way of desperation. So it's not just like, oh, I'll pray for you, and we feel like, okay, yeah, what good is that going to do? But when we're truly desperate, the only thing that can bring us comfort is if we can pray to the Lord. If we can have an advocate. And then we have this beautiful picture of Samuel, who took the nursing lamb and offered it as the whole burnt offering. I know you probably well know in Leviticus 1.4, we read that the priest shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. blood must be shed if an advocate is going to do any good for us. And in John 1.29, you have this picture of Jesus walking towards John the Baptist. And John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You don't even have to stretch to see Christ all over this text. There's no hope. We're going to be destroyed by our enemies. It's not much different than Lord Look at this sin day after day after day. Even when my actions look good, my heart continues to sin. In all desperation, cry out to the Advocate. Because here's what the Scripture says of our Advocate. Hebrews 7.23 The former priest were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. The priest died. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Speaking of Christ, consequently, now get this, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him Now get this, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Can he save? Yeah, he can save to the uttermost. He never dies. He always lives. Why? To always make intercession. Well, can he forgive me? I'm continually sinning and seeing sin and being broken. Well, your advocate will last forever And He's doing something always on your behalf. Brokenness over sin. This isn't going to satisfy. I'm turning looking over here to the kindness of God. I'm crying out to the advocate. If you want to know the rhythm of life back towards God, this is is what it looks like. Lament. Turn. Cry out to the Advocate. And finally, remember the Lord's kindness and provision for you. What's Israel's problem? What continues to be their problem? God is merciful to them. He saves them. And they do what? Forget. So Samuel sets up a stone saying, Until now, the Lord has helped us. He's always been there for us. How often do we run through the cycle and then forget? my question to you, what does it look like for us to set up an Ebenezer stone? Because you better have them or we'll forget just as fast as Israel. Maybe it's a friend who when you tell him of your sin and brokenness and struggle, he says, hey, you want to remember about your great high priest who is always doing something and who is always providing? There's an Ebenezer stone. Maybe it's a Bible journal that you need to go back and read and remember the faithfulness of God in your life. Maybe it's reading the Bible when the psalmist is crying out, remember, I had forgotten, but now I remember the works of the Lord. Maybe it's listening to preaching where you're reminded of your great Savior or prayer as you remember that the Lord hears us. You read Paul, his letters. He's just amazing. He only remembers the good. you realize that? I thank God, I thank God for the grace, for the grace, for the grace, for the grace. And what's the circumstances of his life? Man, that looked like hell. That looked like hell. That looked like hell. How does he do that? Well, because he's remembering Christ. He's filtering every circumstance through the reality of his living Redeemer who has secured everything for Him. You might be wondering, so what is this? Give me an example of this cycle going through. I'll give you Paul's example from Romans 7. Can you relate to this? Paul says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do not do what I want, I agree that the law is good and that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want. This I keep on doing. If I do what I do not want, It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in with me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in the members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members." What's he doing? He's lamenting over his sin. He's seen his sin. What a wretched man am I. All right. Begin to hit rock bottom. The Philistines are coming. We're going to be destroyed. What a wretched man am I. Now get this. Who will deliver me? from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but my, with my flesh I serve the law of sin. That's where chapter 7 ends, but then here's the first verse in chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Jesus, Paul saw his sin, he hated his sin, he struggled with his sin, he hit rock bottom in his sin. Who will save me? Christ will save me. Cries out to the advocate, there is therefore now, how much condemnation? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is really easy to live your life. You're feeling guilt. Let's just play out a couple scenarios in clo- closing. Lament. It's really easy to not lament over our sin, to not be broken, just to recognize it. So we could skip step one. Or how easy is it to, in a sense, complain about our sin, but not turn to God for are how, how easy is it for us to lament and to turn and look to God, but forget the advocate and to think he's upset with me. I got to do better. Let me tell you something. You will never do good enough until Christ comes. So you better do step three and go through the advocate. And then how often do we forget about the wonderful grace of God in the blood shed for us on the cross. Father, Israel, all throughout the Old Testament, we would like to say that in the New Covenant we can't relate to them at all, that we're just always worshiping You in fullness of heart, but way too often, We must admit that we run through this cycle. But Lord, thanks be to God that You are a kind God that draws sinners in. Thank You for Jesus. Lord, I pray You would help us to live the type of lives that can serve You knowing there's forgiveness even for our sin. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.